Welcome to The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the editor-in-chief of Investopedia and your guide and fellow traveler on our journey into what it means to be a green investor today and where this investing theme is headed in the future. On the show this week, an energy crisis is gripping Europe and California, and price shocks are on the way. And carbon capture was touted as a key solution to reducing global warming, and tens of billions of dollars has been spent and promised to carbon capture technologies by the largest countries and companies in the world. But critics argue that not only is it less effective than promised, it might not even be necessary. Carol Muffet of the Center for International Environmental Law is one of them, and he joins the show to make the case. But first and always, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in securities mentioned on this podcast, and some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on the podcast, but all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. California is baking and ISO, its grid operator, has issued an emergency call for consumers and businesses to conserve energy for the seventh consecutive day to avoid blackouts amid soaring temperatures. The state has even urged residents to cut back on charging their electric vehicles due to energy shortages. If demand for power exhausts the grid's electric reserves, the ISO said it would instruct utilities to start imposing rotating outages throughout the state. It would be the first time the state has taken a such a measure since a brutal heat wave in August of 2022 forced power cuts over two days to around 800,000 homes and businesses. U.S. power prices in California and other western states this week soared to their highest levels since 2020. As of earlier this week, solar power was supplying about a fifth of the state's power demand. Meanwhile, in Europe, gas prices have been surging for several days after Russia halted gas flows to the continent via its Nord Stream 1 pipeline in response to sanctions and accusations that European countries are aiding Ukraine's armed forces. That Nord Stream 1 pipeline runs under the Baltic Sea to Germany and has historically supplied about a third of the gas Russia exported to Europe, although lately it's been running at about 20% of capacity due to maintenance outages. Many European power distributors have already collapsed and some major power generators could be at risk, hit by caps that limit the prices they can pass on to consumers. With gas prices now 400% higher than a year ago, countries including Finland, Sweden, and Germany are already preparing aid packages to back stop their biggest utilities to keep them from collapsing. But keep in mind that all European countries are already dealing with rampant inflation, just as the European Central Bank is raising interest rates. Here is Goldman Sachs' forecast on where prices are headed from a note out earlier this week. At current forward prices, they estimate, energy bills will peak early next year at €500 per month for a typical European family. That implies a 200% increase versus 2021. This implies a $2 trillion surge in energy bills, or 15% of total GDP. Protests are already flaring up around Europe as consumers rail against high food and energy prices. Let's do the news. China's ambitious climate targets will require some heavy spending if they are to be realized, nearly $19 trillion worth of investment according to the nation's top climate officials. Xi Jinhua, China's top climate envoy, said the 130 trillion yuan of spending needed to peak emissions by the year 2030 and zero them out completely by the year 2060 will bring great opportunities for the new energy industry, according to a report from the National Business Daily. China already has the world's largest solar and wind power fleets and is installing massive amounts of new panels and turbines in remote desert areas. 
The damage from the floods in Pakistan will be far greater than $10 billion, according to the nation's planning minister, after millions lost their homes and livelihoods amid historic rainfall. The heavy flooding has claimed more than 1,300 lives so far, and the latest assessment shows the damage will be worse than initial forecasts. More than a third of the country is underwater, and about half a million people have been forced into relief camps. Pakistani's government is warning of a looming food crisis as crops and livestock have been washed away in the flooding. About 40% of the cotton output, one of Pakistan's most important cash crops and commonly referred to as white gold over there, has been destroyed. The nation's interior minister is blaming the developed world for the recent flooding. Hawaii shuttered its last remaining coal-fired power station last week, a major milestone in the 50th state's ambitious efforts to transition to 100% renewable energy by the year 2045. The station, the AES Hawaii Power Plant near Kalialoa in southwest Oahu, provided more than 11% of the state's electricity in 2021, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Taking it offline will stop 1.5 million metric tons of greenhouse gases that were emitted annually, according to Hawaii's governor. Throughout the United States, there are fewer than 270 coal-burning power plants remaining in the country. More than 600 have been retired over the past two decades. Hawaii has been working toward an energy sector powered completely by renewable energy by the year 2045, a goal that was written into the state law in 2015. Court in South Africa on Thursday struck down a controversial permit for oil and gas exploration in the seabed off of South Africa's wild coast, siding with environmentalists and local fishing communities. The permit, issued by South Africa's Department of Mineral Resources and Energy, gave Royal Dutch Shell the permission to use seismic testing with blaring sound waves to map the ocean floor. The method is used to locate hydrocarbon deposits underneath the ocean floor, but scientists warn that the extreme noise endangers sound-sensitive wildlife such as whales, dolphins, and sea turtles. The wild coast on the east coast of South Africa consists of a 250-kilometer strip between the Matumba River in the north and the Great Kai River in the south. The rugged area is known for its indigenous tribes as well as its marine and terrestrial wildlife, including endangered and threatened species. Shell, in partnership with London-based Impact Africa, planned to charter a seismic vessel trailing a six-kilometer-long array of air guns to shoot sound waves toward the seabed. What do LeBron James, Bill Gates, and Mark Cuban have in common? Despite the fact that they're all billionaires, they are also co-investors in Neutral Foods, a company that tracks and buys carbon credits to neutralize greenhouse gas emissions from dairy farms. It's partnering with farmers to help cut their own emissions at the source, so it says. Portland, Oregon-based Neutral Foods announced its $12 million first-round Series A funding that included investments from Gates, Cuban, and LeBron James, as well as musical artists Questlove and John Legend, among others. Neutral Foods claims to be one of the first carbon-neutral food companies in the United States. It debuted nationally in 2021, and its milk products are found in 2,000 grocery stores, and it has plans to expand into butter and meat. Carbon capture technology has been proselytized as one of the great hopes for reducing global greenhouse emissions and everyone from the largest industrial superpowers on the planet to the biggest multinational corporations have ambitious plans for using it in their net zero strategies and pledges. As a reminder, carbon capture utilization and storage, often referred to as CCUS, one of those great acronyms in green investing, refers to a suite of technologies designed to capture carbon dioxide from high emitting activities such as power plants or industrial facilities that either use fossil fuels or biomass for fuel. The captured carbon dioxide, which can also be captured directly from the atmosphere, is then compressed and transported via pipeline, ship, rail, or truck to be used in a range of applications or permanently stored underground. The topic and the technology are also a source of great debate in the energy and global warming conversations, as you might imagine, and critics of it, and there are many, 
argue about whether it's even effective or even necessary. One of the most vocal critics of CCUS is Carol Muffett. He's the president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law, which is a nonprofit organization that uses the power of law to protect the environment, promote human rights, and ensure a just and sustainable society. And he is our guest this week on The Green Investor. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell us briefly what the Center for International Environmental Law does. I just gave the broad strokes, but who are your backers and what are your key initiatives? Seattle has been around for uh, 35 years. We are a nonprofit legal organization that works to protect the environment, promote human rights, and ensure a just and sustainable society. We work with communities around the world who have been affected by large infrastructure projects and extractive projects. We work on climate change toxics, and array of issues. Great. So let's talk about carbon capture technology. Your center put out a report last year basically stating that not only is it not effective at reducing or slowing climate change, it may not even be necessary. Let's break that down a little bit. Let's talk about the efficacy of it. Why might it not be as effective as it's touted to be? Well, I think if you look at the history of carbon capture and storage, what you find is a cure in search of a disease. When I first began researching and working on CCS in the early 2000s, CCS was going to save the American coal industry. CCS was designed to allow us to continue burning coal indefinitely. And yet the problems that plagued CCS with respect to coal plagued CCS in fossil fuel burning power plants to this day. And that is CCS takes a technology that is just increasingly uncompetitive and not economic and it makes it even more extensive. And so that's the first and fundamental problem with CCS is there's no case for it when it comes to the phase out of fossil energy. And in fact, the proponents of CCS focus less and less on deploying CCS with respect to existing fossil energy plants because it's just going to make them even more costly. If you look at the analysis from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, among others, what you find is that New build renewable energy is now the cheapest source of new electricity for more than two-thirds of the U.S. population and more than two-thirds of the global population. And therefore, the clear solution in most cases where there is an energy shortfall is new build renewable energy. CCS can't compete with that. And indeed, increasingly, coal and even natural gas existing plants are struggling to compete with renewable energy. When you add CCS on top of that, it makes them more costly, it makes them less efficient, and the economic case for doing that is is really slender. This is one of the reasons why we see proponents of CCS increasingly talking not about using CCS on natural gas plants or on coal plants, which needs to be phased out entirely, but instead used for hard-to-reach industrial emissions. And most of the analysis, most of the proponents of CCF now are very focused on these hard-to-reach industrial emissions. And the problem that they face is that analysis, even from CCS proponents, reveals that CCS can make only a very modest and still very costly and risky contribution to those hard-to-reach industrial emissions. One of the key sources that we looked at was a comprehensive analysis of more than 1,500 industrial facilities in the United States that was undertaken by CCS researchers, including a researcher from Chevron Corporation, which is a major CCS proponent. That analysis of more than 1,500 facilities found only 123 
for which CCS was economically viable, even with full deployment of enhanced oil recovery, which means you take the captured carbon just to produce more oil, and with full deployment of federal subsidies. So even fully subsidized, what, what the researchers found was that CCS could contribute to only, only about 56 megatons, 56 million tons of CO2 emission reductions, which is a fraction of a fraction of U.S. reductions. Only 8% of all industrial facilities they assessed were even viable for CO2, for carbon capture. I think that's a pretty low number given the cost of these facilities and the enormous risks that they posed. So, Carol, why do the big oil companies, let's just pick on them for a second, why do they embrace it? Is it a get-out-of-jail-free card to produce as much carbon dioxide as they want in their operations, as long as they're promising to grab carbon on the other side through carbon capture? Why are they so into it? Because we know there's a lot of money put behind this and a lot more money potentially coming through the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Well, actually, I think... It's really important to look at those two things separately. There are a lot of claims by industry. And yes, there is a lot of federal money being committed to these projects. But the actual amount of company money that is being invested in these projects is comparatively small compared to their wider infrastructure investments. And that brings me back to the question of what is the value of CCS for particularly the major oil and gas producers? And there, I think the answer is really simple. CCS creates the idea that we can go on burning oil and gas indefinitely and somehow make the carbon disappear. And that narrative is enough to slow action. And we saw that in the Inflation Reduction Act. We saw it in the bipartisan infrastructure bill that was adopted earlier in the year. So what we are seeing is that this narrative that CCS is going to make emissions disappear has been very effective in allowing major fossil fuel producers to argue that their business models will somehow be sustainable over long time horizons. Right. You say in your report that CCS perpetuates fossil fuel systems and impacts. It allows them just to keep operating as usual. We know these big oil companies have promises of transitioning to cleaner energy in the future, but we're in the middle of a commodity super cycle. If you hadn't noticed, China's going to be using more oil and coal. India's going to be using more oil and coal. U.S. has reduced that, but basically we're in a heavy usage period right now and prices are sky high. And then the thing that you care most about at your center is this posing risk to communities, especially poorer communities, and the environment that this proposes. How is this myth propagating its way all the way to it's actually doing more damage than any potential good? And I think this is why the the CCS myth has been so pervasive for so long, is that there were very few projects being built in any meaningful way. And now we see the acceleration of CCS projects. It's worth noting that CCS pilot projects have by and large failed or underdelivered for decades. Now we see the expansion and acceleration of projects, and those projects are overwhelmingly targeting communities that have been surrounded by fossil fuel infrastructure for decades. When you look at maps of the proposed CCS build-out, what you see is proponents of CCS are arguing for between 25,000 and 60,000 miles of new CCS pipelines. And once that carbon is captured, it has to be stored, and it can be stored in one of two ways. The vast majority of captured carbon has been used simply to produce more oil. 80% of captured carbon to date 
and most projects in the pipeline were about producing more oil through enhanced oil recovery, which just releases that carbon back to the atmosphere. If you are going to move the carbon to some place where you can store it, then the number of places where viable storage exists and is economic are relatively limited. And so what you see is this focus on, well, what, what are the places where there's the shortest distance between heavy concentrations of emissions and places where carbon might be injected? And those places are overwhelmingly places like Cancer Alley in Louisiana and Houston's Petrochemical Corridor, to name a few places that have lived with fossil fuel infrastructure for decades. And this is important because for those communities, what CCS will mean is increased emissions from facilities that apply the CCS technology, because you have to burn more fuel to get the same amount of energy when you're using CCS. And it means new or repurposed pipelines. And there's this assumption, there's this longstanding assumption that Carbon dioxide is benign. Everyone thinks, well, CO2 is what you use to make your fizzy water fizzy, so it must be harmless. But when you compress CO2 to the densities required to ship it through pipelines, it becomes a fundamentally different and a fundamentally more dangerous substance. Uh, it is CO2 is highly corrosive when it's compressed. That means that it can cause failures in the pipelines that it's being shipped through. It's shipped at higher pressures than natural gas. And so arguments that we can use existing natural gas pipelines and repurpose them for CCS are fundamentally dangerous. And then there's the question of what happens if there's a leak, because CO2 is an asphyxiant and an intoxicant. And that means that at low concentrations of CO2, you can render people inebriated, intoxicated, unable to make good decisions. At slightly higher concentrations, you can knock them out, render them unconscious, and at slightly higher concentrations above that, it's fatal. And we saw, we've seen the consequences of CO2 exposures many times over the years, but the most recent evidence of this is a pipeline, a CO2 pipeline that burst in Satarshan, Mississippi in early 2020. And what happened when that pipeline burst was that Dozens of people were sent to the hospital. More than 300 people had to evacuate. First responders, when they got to the scene, found people, described people wandering around like zombies and frothing at the mouth. And significantly, because CO2 is more dense than air, unlike natural gas, which in the case of a release will disperse, CO2 sinks to the ground and hugs the ground and moves into low places, which increases the period during which it can cause significant exposures. So for all of these reasons, the build-out of CCS poses really significant risks that aren't being fairly evaluated. And those risks are falling disproportionately on communities of color who have faced this precisely this sort of systemic racism and environmental injustice for many decades. We will link to the report in the show notes. But as you know, Carol, there's more than 20 large-scale CCS 
commercial projects in operation around the world. There's plans for over 40 or so new facilities that are coming on in the next year or two or in the next several years. And there's a lot of money flowing into the venture capital area of uh, climate tech for these purposes. So is this billions of dollars chasing after a myth of what might be a potentially useful technology, but actually isn't according to your standards? It is absolutely chasing after a myth. I think if you look, if you look seriously at CCS, if you look at the use cases, if you look at the energy demands that it poses and at the economic context in which it's being deployed, it's, it's clear that CCS faces the same problem that it's always faced, which was a problem of fundamental economics. This is why you see that no matter how many subsidy dollars are being deployed for CCS, there's always a demand for still higher subsidies. We saw that with the 45Q federal subsidy for CCS being increased and then it increased yet again in this latest round. I think this speaks to the fundamental economic failure of this technology. And that economic failure is really coupled with its failure from a climate perspective. It is much more effective from a climate perspective to deploy renewable energies that are going to avoid emissions in the first place then try to catch emissions at the end of a smokestack. Right. So you say in the report, again, citing here a 1.5 degree Celsius pathway, this is the limiting of temperature rising to 1.5 Celsius over the next several years. It's possible without CCS, but that is really through a transition to renewable sources, whether that's through transportation, whether that's through energy production, enhancing natural carbon sequestration. So is the answer renewables? What solutions actually work? What solutions actually work for industry? And what solutions actually work in terms of protecting those most vulnerable? Yeah, absolutely. And I think here what we've seen is a dramatic acceleration in the deployment of renewable energy coupled with a dramatic reduction in its cost. And this is why renewable energy is now not only outcompeting new build coal and gas plants, but increasingly outcompeting existing plants. So absolutely, you know, renewable energy from an economic perspective is the more viable approach and and the technology that we know works right now. CCS pilot projects have a, a decades-long history of over-promising and under-delivering. So I think when you look at what is actually going to deliver results from the climate perspective, it really is the coupling of renewable energy deployments with you know increased electrification, which we also see accelerating. In the industrial sector, I want to go back to that analysis that I referred to. One of the really striking things about that analysis of industrial sector emissions was that the authors of that research report, looking at those 1,500 facilities, immediately eliminated from their analysis the grid energy that was actually the primary source of industrial emissions for the whole U.S. sector. And the reason was that they concluded that, well, this energy is coming in from the grid. And so electrifying that part of the grid is as viable a solution as as anything else. So we're not going to look at that. So they were looking only at process emissions from industrial facilities. This is really important. It means that massive amounts of industrial facility emissions can actually be addressed by electrifying the grid. And then yes, you do get facilities that have more difficult, you know, more difficult difficult emission pro- profiles. What you're urging is this transition to renewable energy. We know it's happening slowly but surely across a bunch of different sectors, but it's going to cost a lot of money. 
Would it make more sense, and I think I'm hearing you say this, for these companies and countries to devote these tens or hundreds of billions of dollars towards renewables and just forget about carbon capture technology and sequestration because it's just not going to work as effectively as putting that money towards a massive transition, but that could still take years. Yeah, and I think this is actually key. Uh, The transition will take years. But if you look at the proposals for carbon capture and storage, many of those are years to decades before they begin delivering results as well. And so if we've got a technology that we know is working, we know is scalable, we know is shovel ready in countries around the world, and that technology also happens to be cheaper than not only CCS, but even increasingly cheaper than the fossil fuels themselves, why would we not be using that technology and investing there instead of investing billions of dollars in a technology that you know has really limited use cases? Which country, briefly here before we close, is doing it right? Or which countries are doing it right where the U.S. and other developed nations can take their hints from? Yeah, I think that is something that really remains to be seen. I think one of the I think one of the things that we've seen is that this promise of CCS has been touted for so long that it's really received relatively little critical attention, truly critical attention until the last couple of years. And what we are what we're seeing now is as these proposals start to look real as they move out of academic texts and out of policy papers and into people's communities, people are starting to take a hard look at them. And that's where the economics of these projects are going to meet reality in a very hard way. And so if you're investing in this myth because you've been told that it's going to be cheaper and easier than other forms of transition, I think that's where you're going to face a very rude awakening when these projects meet the communities that don't want to see them. Great point. And we will link to your report and to your center, Carol Muffett, the president and CEO of the Center for International Environmental Law. Thanks so much for joining The Green Investor. Thanks very much for having me. It's time for Green Facts, that part of the show where we get to unpack peculiar facts and figures around green investing. And this week, we're headed north to the Arctic. There's been news out recently that the United States is planning to appoint an ambassador for the Arctic amid rising Russian military activity in the region. The ambassador at large will be put in place to advance U.S. policy in the northern polar region, according to the State Department. Last Friday, NATO Chief Jen Stoltenberg warned of the threat posed by Russia in the northern polar regions, as well as China's reach into the Arctic. The new U.S. ambassador will engage with the seven other Arctic nations. Those are Canada, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, and Russia, as well as indigenous groups and other stakeholders, according to the State Department. The statement from the State Department reads, as one of the eight Arctic nations, the United States has been long committed to protecting our national security and economic interests in the region, combating climate change, fostering sustainable development and investment, and promoting cooperation with Arctic states, allies, and partners. The Arctic, by the way, holds an estimated 13% or 90 billion barrels of the world's undiscovered conventional oil resources and 30% of its undiscovered conventional natural gas resources, according to an assessment conducted by the U.S. Geological Survey. It's time to unpack the acronym, that part of the show where we try to deconstruct the alphabet soup that is green investing. And this week, we're going to stay up north in the Arctic with the acronym EEZ, and that stands for Exclusive Economic Zone. Up in the Arctic, the EEZ, or Exclusive Economic Zones, refer to areas up to 200 miles beyond the coast of the eight countries that have been apportioned jurisdictions in the zone north of the Arctic Circle. Those countries again, Canada, Denmark, Greenland, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Russia, Sweden, and the United States. Those eight countries have exclusive rights to seabed resources in 
in those EEZs and can drill at will. Remember, 13% of the planet's oil reserves and 30% of its natural gas reserves is sitting under all that melting ice. Now that ambassadorship is starting to make a little bit more sense. We'll go out this week, as we always do, celebrating this week in environmental history. And this week, we're celebrating the birthday of Jane Addams, who was born on September 6, 1860, in Cedarville, Illinois. Adams was a leader of the progressive women's movement, founding the Hull House in Chicago as a way to extend education, social services, and political advocacy to the poor of her city. She fought against child labor, water and air pollution, and many other problems, and she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931 for her expression of an essentially American democracy. Happy birthday, Jane Adams, Chicago's finest. Thanks for joining us this week. As always, on The Green Investor, and special thanks to Carol Muffet for joining the show. We'll post a link to the transcript of our conversation in the show notes, as well as links to the Center for International Environmental Law and its reports on carbon capture technology. We'll also post links to the reports we cited throughout the show, and you can find all of those on Investopedia.com slash The Green Investor Podcast, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Until we meet again, keep it green. Keep it green.